Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 181, Devil's Do. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Janaj Champion. And I'm Kanak Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we take a hard look at an episode of Star Trek, pouring through it frame by frame, looking for what it demands of us, and ways we can get out of it. This week, Devil's Due. Devil's Due what? Oh, I'm so sad I used that last week, because it would have been so much better. It's not a joke until we do it three times. That's true, so listen in next week. I don't know how we're going to work it in, but we will. (laughs) Trust us. Culture. Excuse me. In a moment, John Champion will hit your head with all sorts of Devil's Due trivia. Oh yeah, Devil's Due trivia. But first, if you would like to get in touch with this show, we would love for you to do so. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and places to leave comments, is missionlogpodcast.com. And please... Do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now it's time for trivia on Devil's Due. This episode was written by Philip Lezebnik and William Douglas Lansford. Now, the original story dates back to the 1960s. Uh, Gene Roddenberry coming up with ideas for his new show called Star Trek kind of threw this one into the pile. And then it was revived for what would have been Star Trek Phase Two in the 1970s. It's a very similar plot line. Well, okay, the same plot line. <laughs> the idea was to use those unused scripts during the writer's strike that we discussed back during Season 2 of The Next Generation. That's how we got the Season 2 opener, The Child, and, of course, In Thy Image is what had become Star Trek The Motion Picture. So all of those scripts getting reused and recycled. So this is William Douglas Lansford's last professional credit as a writer. Uh, But he had created stories prior to this for Bonanza, Wagon Train, Ironside, and Fantasy Island, to name a few. Philip Lezebnik, uh, who after this contributed to many animated projects as well as Danish TV projects, was hired by Michael Piller to rewrite the script. And what he turned in was leaning a little too close to comedy for some taste. So it went through more rewrites from a lot of the writers that we know about, Melinda Snodgrass, etc., finally landing on the female Ardra character. So originally that was a male character, but then things just kind of clicked into place when they decided that Ardra would be a woman. It was directed by Tom Benko. His first next-gen directing credit was Transfigurations, remember John Doe. And he was working as an editor on Next Generation since the beginning with Encounter at Farpoint. He continued to edit for a total of 40 episodes, then went on to edit a little bit for Deep Space Nine and Voyager. But this was his second and last directorial credit for Star Trek. Now, this episode was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Costume Design. And we do open with a scene from A Christmas Carol. That story was published first in 1843. Charles Dickens himself would perform this piece starting back in 1853. He would actually act out all the characters of the book. So that gave an idea to Patrick Stewart, and he began developing a one-man show in the Dickens tradition starting in 1987. So this was a known thing and kind of worked its way into Star Trek. 
Let's talk about the title, Devil's Due, uh, the meaning. So, I mean, literally it means paying the devil what you owe him. But, Ken, if we were to use a, a figurative use of that, it, it usually means just sort of giving a compliment to someone that you dislike. So, you know, if I were to say, uh, you know, Ken, I find your politics abhorrent, but, <laughs> um, but man, you make a great omelet. Uh, that would be like giving the devil his due. Hmm. Um, but in a literary sense, uh, we actually see the first literary use of this. And, of course, our old friend Shakespeare, Henry IV, Part One, um, the line uh, between Constable and uh, Orleans, or Orleans, I will cap that proverb with there is flattery and friendship, to which he replies, and I will take up that with give the devil his due. Now, guest stars, Marcello Tubert as Ecoste Jared. In addition to guest roles on shows like Heart to Heart, The A-Team, L.A. Law, and yes, Moonlighting. He has had recurring spots on ER, The West Wing, Young and the Restless, Days of Our Lives, and as a voice on King of the Hill. And he was in the second G.I. Joe live-action movie, Retaliation. We have Paul Lambert as Dr. Howard Clark. Paul, after World War II, studied acting on the GI Bill at Actors Lab in L.A. He appeared in TV guest roles in the 50s, then appeared in the movie Spartacus in 1960. He shows up in The Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, I Spy, a couple of episodes of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and later in his career in shows like Ellie Law, Airwolf, and Quincy M.E. We have seen him once before in his only other Trek credit, which was in the season one episode, When the Bow Breaks. He passed away in 1997. Now, let's talk about Ardra. Uh, originally considered for the role of Ardra were actresses Stella Stevens and Adrienne Barbeau, both <laughs> of whom I am a fan. Interesting to have seen that played by either one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this case, Ardra is played by Marta Dubois. Marta was a regular on Tales of the Gold Monkey. She appeared on The A-Team, MacGyver, a recurring role in Magnum P.I., and was a regular in the McBride TV movies with John Larroquette. It is L.A. Law meets Dante's Inferno. It is Perry Mason meets Satan. It is Devil's Due. Prologue. We open with the ghost of Jacob Marley confronting his old business partner, Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, typical day on the Enterprise. In this case, it's a holodeck simulation, and Commander Data is playing Scrooge in Act 1 of A Christmas Carol. There's an audience of one, Captain Picard, who freezes the program right when it's getting to the good stuff to congratulate Data on his performance. Data explains he's been studying the masters of the method so that he might understand human emotion through acting. On the bridge, Riker announces an emergency transmission from the science station at Ventax 2. It's Howard Clark from the station stating that they are in a state of crisis. Hordes of people outside running around rioting because they think their world is coming to an end. Act 1. Arriving at Ventax 2, there is chaos in the science station, but the Enterprise transporter room is only able to beam up Dr. Clark. He explains that the Ventaxian people they study live in an agrarian society, but a thousand years ago they were technologically advanced. They gave it all up, and about 70 years ago, when they were discovered by the Klingons, they still refused any technological assistance. Their leader, Akost Jarad, has grown obsessed in recent years with the ancient legend of Ardra, who he warns is going to return. 
Who is this Ardra, you might ask? Well, you could interpret her many ways, but they think she's the devil. Literally. Like she's an ancient god figure who has returned to collect on a bargain she made with the Ventaxians a thousand years ago. In the science station, things have gotten worse. Across Jared's people have broken in and taken the scientist hostage. Picard offers to negotiate Federation support, weapons, etc., as long as they let these people go. Jared says it wouldn't matter anyway. The earthquakes that are happening, the visions of Ardra, it was all foretold and it's all coming true. No weapon can stop her. Deanna Troy is so on top of this. Yep, those people are freaked out. Genuinely so. Data lays out what the deal was. A thousand years ago, Ardra offered the Ventaxians peace, but for a small price. When she returned, they would become her slaves. Picard wants to look for himself. He beams down with Worf, Data, and Deanna. It is chaotic on the surface. People running around, just, just running, stuff burning behind them. When Picard meets Jared, he asks to again let them help or at least get the Federation people back. Data says what's going on with the earthquake offers little real danger, but Jared and his people are so worried that Ardra is coming, and she does, right there, out of thin air, Ardra appears with the dire proclamation that time is up. Act 2. More chaos, more running, more burning, and Ardra is all about business. She puts Jared right in his place. He is to provide a census and economic accounting of all that is hers now. Picard is decidedly less in awe of her and lets it be known. He wants to know who she is. And in fact, she is just about every bad guy imaginable. The devil, even. To Worf, she instantly takes the form of Feklar, the guardian of the dishonored. Imagine a Klingon, but with nastier teeth and more drooling. Picard, though, is a non-believer in Ardra. He asks to see the contract, and in short order, he does. He requests that Data give it a look, and Ardra, in a show of good faith, demands that Jared let the Federation hostages go free. After all, she's got her sights on a bigger prize. She thinks Picard finds her irresistible. Back on the Enterprise, Picard is trying to get to the bottom of it all with his staff. He's pretty sure that she is a flim-flam artist, using simple tricks with technology to show off her not-so-special powers. He orders a deep scan of the area to see if there might be a ship or some power source helping her out. Jordy will go back to the science station with Dr. Clark to see if there are any clues about the origin of the earthquakes. Back on the bridge, who should be sitting in the big chair but Ardra herself? When Worf approaches to forcibly remove her, she creates the kind of force field out of thin air, knocking him back. Then she approaches Picard, who just calls the transporter room to have her beamed off the ship. She dematerializes, but wait. The person at the helm now is Ardra? About that time, Data walks in to say that he has finished studying the Ventaxian contract, and the news is not good. It's a pretty solid deal, indicating that Ardra is owed the population of Ventax 2, the planet itself, anything in the sky or in orbit around it. That includes the Enterprise, and that includes everyone on the ship. Act 3. Time to study. Picard, being an enlightened man of the 24th century, needs to learn about this outdated concept of the con game. He enlists Data's help to out-con the con artist based on the premise that, yes, there is a contract in place, but the root cause, the claim of Ardra's supernatural power, should be in question. 
Maybe this is a theology that's simply built up around a contract devised for very practical reasons, and now this Ardra is here to take advantage. Fear is a powerful motivator. Picard wants Data to try to find a loophole that would allow them to challenge the contract. That night, Picard is asleep when a visitor appears in his quarter. Uh, You know who. It's Ardra, and she is turning on the seduction. Picard is uninterested. Oh, she tries wardrobe change and then appearing as Deanna Troy, but the kind of Deanna Troy who can't keep her hands off the captain? Awkward. And when he turns her down for the last time, Ardra magically transports Picard to the science station in his uh, sleeping clothes. Not the most dignified thing. Since she has now also somehow blocked the ship's transporter, Picard asks for a shuttle to pick him up and bring him a uniform. On the ride back, Data tells Picard that a a little bit of Intaxian law allows for a third-party arbitrator in disputes. Hold that thought. We might need it later. Anyway, Picard and Data are close to the Enterprise in their shuttle when the Enterprise just disappears. It is nowhere to be seen and doesn't respond to Hales. Act 4. So back in the science station, they're still looking for the Enterprise, but Jordy is onto something, a jump in Z particles, which is just sciency enough that he thinks they can use that to trace the source of Arja's power, as long as she keeps using them. Speak of the devil, literally, she shows up again, and now Picard is ready for her by suggesting an arbitration. He will prove that she is a fraud, but if she wins, she wants him, mind, body, and spirit. Picard agrees. One little detail, who will be the arbitrator? Ardra chooses Data. And even over his concerns to Captain Picard, it is settled, since he is dispassionate enough to deliver a fair verdict. Let the games begin. Ekos Jared is first on the stand, and he gives the background. A thousand years ago, the warring Ventaxians were offered a future of peace and prosperity, an era ushered in and maintained by Ardra. Picard questions if this even really is Ardra, but Data assures them that, yes, according to law, they will have to go with that premise. She fits what the ancient scrolls describe, arriving on the right date and preceded by earthquakes. Then things get a little weird when Ardra asks to question Picard. She goes through a demonstration of her powers, earthquakes, shape-shifting, and asks if he can explain it. Picard relents, no, he cannot. Ardra rests her case. Act 5. Computers, Z-particles, aligning trajectories, scientists looking very concerned. This is what we need. Geordi has found a spot in orbit around Ventax 2. And what do we have here? Nothing. At least it appears to be nothing, but Geordi has doubts. Back in the courtroom, Picard is examining Jared and asks how the thousand years of peace and prosperity happened. Did Ardra snap her fingers? Did she teach them? Did she change the government and get rid of their weapons? No. Even Jared admits this. The people of Ventax changed things slowly over time by themselves. Even with this admission, Jared admits under cross-examination from Ardra that he believes none of it would have been possible without Ardra. Just as things are about to wrap up, Geordi drops by and asks to talk with Picard. They'll take a one-hour recess. You know what? We don't even need an hour. Geordi explains they found a cloaked ship, and that gets the wheels turning. When the arbitration returns, Picard shows Jared that he has stolen Ardra's powers. 
a quick earthquake, making Ardred disappear, and most impressive of all, Picard himself turns into Fekalar. That cloaked ship had all of Ardra's secrets, tractor beams, holograms, transporters. She was controlling all of the effects with subtle cues from her eyes. And what's more, she has a record of doing this. At least 23 aliases in this sector alone. And she would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids. Archer tries to make a gracious exit, but Jared has already called security. Data declares the contract null and void. Jared is on his way back to work, presumably. Picard and Data are on their way to the Enterprise, but Ardra can't help but tell Picard he'll see her again someday. The end. So how long do you think before the Ventaxians are back to warring? Ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we have nothing to fear, but I yeah. don't like the way that guy's looking at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, man, that like that contract. It was so good for a thousand years, but what do we do now? Yeah, exactly. Guess we go back to fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Probably tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. tomorrow. But just a quick note that that little mention of the method mm-hmm. at the beginning of the episode, um, a kind of emotional recall rather than acting. Like you know, up until you had guys like Brando hit the scene and they were they were studying Stanislavski and Chekhov and all of this, there was a kind of acting that was this very presentational uh, sort of you know shallow presenting instead of sort of introspective emotional recall type of acting. I thought it was funny that Picard said that that was so old fashioned Mm -hmm. (laughs) as the approach. So then I wondered, well, in the 24th century, what is acting like? Has it just regressed back to that pre method style of very presentational kind of what we would consider to be very fake sort of like silent movies, you know, maybe (laughs) entertainment in the 24th century is not, very good. I, I'll be honest. I often think about entertainment in the 24th century. When we're watching mm-hmm. this show, I'm like, what's on the radio? Is there anything like the radio at that point? Do they have talk stations? Do they have podcasts? Do they have people sitting, you know, when they get done peeling potatoes, do they go back to their room and record <laughs> some show for everybody else on the Enterprise? I, don't, I mean, I've I, I, I wondered about that, you know, a, a, a few times. I will say the thing that actually interested me about that conversation, though, mm-hmm. uh, when Sarek was coming... Was it when Sarek was coming and and Data's like I'm going to perform? I got all these uh, I got all these guys that I can uh, imitate, right. right? And Picard's like, don't don't imitate. Come on, try to make your own thing. And then yeah. and that's basically what he's doing here. He's he's saying, well, I like this guy, I like this guy, but really, I'm trying my own thing with the acting. And Picard's like, right. hey, way to go, you, yeah, nice right. job. Yeah, right. even, though, even though it is of course brought up that he couldn't possibly you know feel, and thus he can't really uh, do the method, but he's doing sort of a reverse method. It, is, he is. He is. Yeah. That's a really interesting idea. And by the way, um, it, well, this won't date our show because it doesn't matter if I said that I had this conversation today and mm-hmm. today is today or today is six months from now when somebody hears this episode. Right. But, but just today, yeah. I, I had the privilege of talking to students about Star Trek and about Mission Log and about the, the topics we discuss on Mission Log. And mm-hmm. somebody actually brought that up as something that bothers her about Star Trek. She said, literally, where are the artists? Where are the TVs? Where are the movies? What is the experience of going to a movie like in the 24th century? Sure, you've got holodecks. Mm-hmm. But, but what about just as a spectator? Like, I, Do I go into a holodeck and then does Casablanca play around me? Or, or how does that work? Yeah. Because so far, you know, what we've seen, and we didn't get into it, but what we've seen is um, Riker 
watching just a really sad little hologram on a table. Oh, that was just and, the beginning of a much nicer hologram is what we were. Yeah, well, it, it was. Or a yeah. much more interesting hologram, let's say. I, I am going to go ahead and date our show right now. Okay, go ahead. I am actually hoping that, that five years from now, when people hear what I'm about to say, that mm. they'll scoff. Okay. I've been a, I've been a like huge fan of the idea of virtual reality since the very early 1990s. Literally January of 1990 was the first time I heard my first presentation on virtual reality. Wow. And as you and I are recording this now, mm-hmm. it, it's like blowing up all over the place and like all these everybody's basically trying to say that what they're doing is virtual reality, including 360 degree video. Mm. And people are like, oh, well, that's well, that's virtual reality. Well, no, it's really just looking any place, but you know, not being able to move around in it, right? right. I mean, you're still right. you're, you're deciding which viewpoint you want, but somebody else is still directing, somebody else is still doing. I mean, the holodeck is is like no small thing because I would imagine that what what watching Casablanca is like on the holodeck is you walk into something that would look like the El Capitan or maybe look mm-hmm. like the Wang Center in Boston or look like uh, you know the best movie palace that you can imagine. And then you're sitting in a 1950s, 1960s, early 2000s, whatever movie theater watching Casablanca. I mean, you're having mm-hmm. you're having that sort of thing. I would imagine right. there's a different right. one where you can actually move around inside of Casablanca as well. But then I'm going to go let Rick do something, and I'm actually going to go upstairs at the uh, at the uh, at the at the place because I've always wanted to know what was up there. Yeah, and I want to stay away from the shooting too. Yeah, that'd so, be good. Yeah, that'd probably yeah. be good. And it's it's <laughs> it, it is a fascinating idea. Or are we to believe that? All of the problems of the 24th century have been solved, including boredom. So we don't actually <laughs> right? need like radio shows and TV shows. Who wants to watch The Real Housewives of Ventax 3? Ventax 3, by the way, sucks. Don't go there. Ventax 2, <laughs> that's where you want to be after, after the looting's over. Right. Got to say really quickly, Ventax 2 is basically made to not be looted mm-hmm. um, because it's like you got a ziggurat and then you walk a mile <laughs> and there's another ziggurat. Yeah. Unless they're all mixed-use facilities, residence, office, and, uh, you know, retail, mm-hmm. in, in which case Ventex 2 is basically made to be looted because you don't <laughs> even have to go anywhere. <laughs> you no. roll out of bed, break a few yeah. windows, go back to bed. Yeah. yeah. Boy, I like that. Those, those Ventaxians, they, they planned either well. Either they were not planning at all or they were planning very well. Not sure yeah. which. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to make this the whole thing because it, it could have turned into a whole thing. But but quick question. If the Ventaxians have lived in an agrarian society for a thousand years and they have eschewed technology and the Federation has a science station there to study them, is that some kind of a violation of the prime directive as we have seen it? Or since the Klingons have made first contact, does that just mean that all bets are off? I would think it would be that all bets were off because the Klingons made first contact. What I was trying to figure out is how did the Klingons make first contact and not take over? But if it oh, happened yeah. 70 years ago, then it would have been after the Kittimer Accord, right? Uh, yes. You're yeah. Right. So that's yeah. how you end up. Seriously, though, somebody probably after they got the first letter about Venta- Ventax would have been like, yeah. oh, wait a minute. Uh, yeah. Listen, about first contact, maybe we could take care of that. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> right. the Vulcans could take care of that because they do this whole thing. It's like a show. It's really amazing. Yeah. Maybe let them You're do right. that. Um, the agrarian society thing actually made me wonder why would this scam artist uh, want anything from these people unless it really was to enslave them? Yeah, to like right. make things right. for her or something like that. Because she says she wants an economic forecast, but they're agrarian. 
So, so mm-hmm. I kept thinking, like, mm-hmm. so she says, so what is the economic forecast? And they're like, well, pork bellies are good, but soybeans are down this year. <laughs> um, that late freeze that ruined the crops. I guess, you know, maybe you could have done something about that. Hey, godlike powers? <laughs> no? Okay, well, sadly. Yeah, come back next year, because next year we're, we're expecting a bumper crop of, uh, of soybeans, maybe. <laughs> right. Well, well, see, now maybe now it, it all makes a little better sense to me, because rather than looking at this as like the, um, the, the duck blind and the, the Federation people who are studying the Mentakans yeah. in Who Watches the Watchers, now really I see it just more like, say, visiting the Pennsylvania Dutch country. <laughs> And you have a lot of people who sort of eschew modern technology, but like the restaurants are open yep. and you can get some great fried chicken. Absolutely. They will make you okay. some, some wonderful food there. The Ventaxian, yeah, be sure to visit that and, and, and pick up some of their popcorn too. I don't know mm-hmm. why, but it's it's just so much better than the, the rest of the galaxies. Yeah. Speaking of food, I love that Picard has time to take tea with Dr. Clark while all hell is breaking loose on the planet below. Yeah. I mean, the, the, just the you see on the screen like those sparks flying and people running around, and there's hostages, and then we cut to this very quiet scene, and there's very little urgency in Doctor Clark's voice because hey, he's on a starship now. Yeah, he's fine. It's like yeah, l- let me tell you a little story. It doesn't surprise me at all though that Picard would do that because remember the the Picard lesson, sir, should we leave orbit and go where? Oh, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. So mm-hmm. he might as well have tea. He's going to be sitting there like you right. know trying to figure out what to do. Does he need to stand to do that? Does he need to not have tea to do that? I don't know. <laughs> he can do both, I think. I noticed early on that Ardra is a palindrome. For what? <laughs> but it's, it's, Ar- it's I Ardra. Love that. I love doing that. I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. It's the same thing backwards and forwards. I actually like that. Yes. Um, as far as deity name goes, names go, I mm-hmm. think that's actually really cool because, like, you know, it, it, it beats the whole alpha and omega thing. Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. travel as far back as you want, or go as far forward as you want. It's Ardra, either way. And yeah. I, I think that's actually that's actually it's, it's sort of like when we found out that Mister Ataz was actually A to Z, right? For the librarian, you name a god Ardra right. or something like that. I don't know, Dodd maybe or Gog, whatever. You know, same yeah. thing backwards uh-huh. and forwards. Palindrome is totally the way to go for a deity, or a race car. That'll be that'll be my deity. Also, my favorite palindrome. <laughs> That's awesome. I worship race yeah. car. What are you, <laughs> right. six? Yeah, okay, maybe. Um, I, I like that when he gets the ancient scrolls, the the, the old contract that uh, Picard says, I would like Mr. Data to read this. Uh, <laughs> follow that line with, so I don't have to. Yeah. Because Data is like a walking Cliff's Notes. Yeah. And I would love to have that at my beck and call. It seemed a bit like having a grad student to me. Sure. <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah, we're going to pour over this. Hey, you, go pour over this, would you? Um, I like actually, it's sort of along the similar line. So Ardra is in Picard's chair, and he's like, leave, or I will remove you by force. And she's like, oh, by force. I'd like to see you try it. And he says, Mr. Worf. <laughs> I love that. That's he, so great. Yeah, but Picard literally does not even take a step toward yeah, her. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or or move his eyes. And Worf's like, over there yeah, like, man, Worf. the captain's going to tr- – me? Oh, <laughs> this is so uncool. Why don't I just throw myself across the room and save us all some time? What do you say? Yeah. Hey, I had another question, by the way, raised by this show. 
Mm-hmm. Remember, I guess it was like last week, two weeks ago, when we had the Romulan mm-hmm. who was pretending to be the Vulcan and nobody was questioning her because she was Vulcan and Vulcans never lie. And I was like, sure. man, they got amazing PR action going, right? Yeah. yeah. So do androids. Ardra chooses Data because he's incapable of deceit. And I'm trying to figure out why we think he's incapable of deceit. I know because we know Data, he's incapable of deceit. But seriously, if I build a robot, I'm mm-hmm. going to program it to lie for me when I don't want to do something. Oh, yeah, <laughs> That's going to yeah. be one of the first things I build then. So she's like, oh, well, he's totally dispassionate. And Picard's like, yeah, you're totally right. He is. Hey, Data, one one thing over here really quickly. I don't understand where that came from unless it's just like – Again, just like the best PR job, uh, you know, in the galaxy. It's good PR, and it's funny because what you're describing actually would fit within the three laws of robotics. It really would. Yeah. Because data just has to find in favor. First of all, it's an order from a human. He has to follow it. Right. You know, and and he has to do that as long as it doesn't harm other humans. Then, granted, the least harm would be to find in favor of the Vintaxians, not right. to find in favor of Ardra. So he, he could logically work his way around just finding for the Enterprise no matter what, like you said. That would have been awesome if they hadn't even had the trial. Yeah, right. Because he, right. he could work all of that in his head and be like, well, I know what's going to be best here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, yeah. Yeah, there, yeah. there's actually a moral absolute to that. Uh, that's kind of interesting. Um, so now we learned in this episode that Picard has some pretty conservative tastes in women. Wow. I, I thought that was interesting, maybe, you know, that uh, she's there as Ardra with a capital A, and then she goes for, like, the Victorian riding costume, which I, I thought was uh, was an interesting choice. And, and then the other thing that kind of amused me here is that Picard says to uh, Geordi that his reputation as a litigator is failing. And I, I was sort of amused that he thinks of himself that way. You know, not not my reputation as a Starfleet captain, not my reputation as the brother of a great winemaker. None of these other things. But no, I'm I'm Jean-Luc Picard, space litigator. Ardra is a palindrome. Radar is also a palindrome. Additionally, radar is an anagram of Ardra. I know that she is not a supernatural being. But how did Ardra not see this trouble coming? So what I found myself wondering after I watched this episode, almost immediately after I watched this episode, is, is this episode saying there is no God? Or is it simply saying that organized religion is a sham? You, you did not waste any time. I did not. No. no. <laughs> Seriously, the credits were rolling, and I was like, wow, I don't want to do yeah. this show, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, right. We've come across any number of seemingly omnipotent beings in our trek amongst the stars. Um, I see what you did there. Trelane. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little doff of the hat to uh, Saffron Cochran as well, or doff of the Jughead hat to mm-hmm. Saffron Cochran. Uh, Trelane, the Metrons, um, Kevin Uxbridge, Q, Lucian. Who, by oh, the way, right, gets okay. no props in this episode, but whatever. We've established that there are godlike beings in the Star Trek universe, but we know that this one is not one. Somehow. I mean, Picard has decided this. It's even brought up, oh, could she be Q or could she be an offshoot of Q? No, no, no. She's a sham. Mm-hmm. Now, why is she a sham? But Q is not a sham. Q is an annoyance, but he's not a, he's not a, he's not a sham, right? Yeah. What's interesting is with the exception... Of uh, the God thing shepherding the Edo, 
uh, most of the godlike beings that we have encountered have not been interested in lording it over people, right? Um, yeah. Apollo did or was. He wanted to be treated like a god still. Mm-hmm. And Gary Mitchell uh, very much wanted to be treated like a god, which is funny because he wasn't one like 10 mm-hmm. minutes ago, although I think he kind of thought he was, but whatever. They're, oh, right. they're the big exceptions. And then the one for the Edo, but the one for the Edo was still like trying to shepherd its people, I felt like. It wasn't just like, you know, praise me. Um, so I guess what I was wondering with this episode is, is Star Trek making a statement not about deities or godlike beings as much as they are about organized religion? Um, people are beings who would stand over others and use the faith of others for their benefit. Is that what's on trial mm. here? Or is faith on trial here? Is the idea of a god on trial here? Or is the idea that you need to jump through hoops to get blessing? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I, I think that both of those are legitimate points to come up from this episode and more. I, I think there's even more stuff that, that we can get into with this. Um, but that's certainly a theme that we've seen in Star Trek before. You know, you, you mentioned the godlike beings. But what's interesting is when you pick apart some of those godlike beings like Lucian, like Apollo, mm-hmm. um, that's where Star Trek is starting to actually feed you a message um, and we talked about it with Who Watches the Watchers, where the the idea is not necessarily that faith as a concept is a bad thing, mm-hmm. but that faith to the extent that we stop using our rational brains and stop the exploration to find out what may be at the at the root of the experiences that we have, that that's really where we, we stop developing and we stop progressing as, as thinking beings. Here's, here's where I have a problem with that idea, though, being addressed in this mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. They're, they're using their brains. There were going to be earthquakes the day that Ardra was coming back, and there are earthquakes the day that Ardra was coming back, and then Ardra was going to come back, and then she did. And she can do all this magic mm-hmm. stuff. Now, so, I mean, they're being presented with evidence at that point. Do you see what I mean? And, yeah, and, sure, I, I and sure, Picard yeah, says, yeah. well, no, 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 this isn't really real. Although there's no reason to assume that this isn't real because we did have the Metarons and we did have Kevin Uxbridge and we did have Trelane and we did have Q. I mean, it's sort yeah. of like unless unless the part that tips him off to this god not being a god is the fact that this god's like, hey, look at me, I'm god. You know what I mean? I mean, is, is, right, that, is right. that the difference here? Is that what's being... Is that what's being castigated? Any God that basically says, no, seriously, treat me like God, then you're like, well, what would God want with that? Well, no, but I, I think that you you have at least with Star Trek's star characters like uh, Captain Picard or like Captain Kirk. Uh, Captain Kirk. <laughs> Captain Picard is a new guy. He's playing on. <laughs> I like him. Um, Can he yeah. be in the new series, please? <laughs> <laughs> but when when he meets the guy like Apollo, you're starting from the premise that they have rejected this idea of supernatural gods. Mm-hmm. So you're starting from that idea. And even though there are phenomena happening, things like earthquakes, which, uh, okay, from our rational scientific minds, we can say, okay, earthquakes are things that happen on planets, and here's why and how they happen. Plates move, this happens, and they, uh, sometimes there are earthquakes that are man-made. We've seen that in our own world. The, that there are man-made earthquakes. So 
it's taking the next step to say, okay, where's the evidence for the evidence? You know, what is the cause for the evidence that we're seeing? Because you can stop at a point and say, this is evidence, but, but I have already come up with a conclusion as to, you know, what I'm looking for, what I'm looking to say. So I'll mold that evidence to fit that conclusion. I, I'll give you an example. So um, if I talk to people who are uh, ghost hunters, mm-hmm. you know, and and they say, okay, well, here, I took this picture and it's got this fuzzy orb in it, this light, this fuzzy thing in it. Now, I'm starting with the premise that that ghosts are a thing that I can photograph. Therefore, every time I take a picture that has something fuzzy in it, that then justifies my belief that, that there are ghosts. Instead of going through the other steps to say, I took a photograph, there's something fuzzy in it. I didn't see anything fuzzy when I took the photograph. So what's creating the fuzz? What's creating that, that light where I didn't expect there to be light? And then actually doing the steps to figure that out instead of saying, I've already come up with a conclusion, so I'm going to make the evidence fit the conclusion. And that's actually something that I sort of spun off into this, this idea that I had. You know, one of the things that we're seeing here is we certainly have the problem of a tautological argument. You know, what Ardra says must be true because the document that describes Ardra says that this is what she will do. Mm-hmm. But we haven't actually proven anything to say that, well, Ardra's background, the, the Ardra that we have met here, the, the, this Ardra, actually has any claim to anything that she claims that she can do. All we have is a document. We just have a document saying, okay, this is what an Ardra is able to do. So mm-hmm. as long as anybody shows up, I can do any of that stuff. They can say, oh, yeah, see, it was in the, it was in the book. And, and the book says that that's me, so I must be me. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a, a bad piece of logical argument to get into. And that's why you, when I say you, I mean the, the people of Ventax or anybody dealing with this kind of a thing, have to actually step out and say, okay, there's the claim being made. But what's the actual underlying evidence and where does that evidence actually lead us to as a conclusion instead of starting with a conclusion? Because Ardra has already started with the conclusion. I'm Ardra. I'm a god. I'm here to take what's mine. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, it's funny. My first note on watching this before I even got to the end of it, I just wrote down uh, Lucian with a question mark <laughs> and maybe a little bit of Sylvia. 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 Then, See, the only yeah. time I got Sylvia off this actually was in the seduction scene. That was like fashions by mm-hmm. Sylvia of Sylvia and Korob. Um, <laughs> right. I don't understand why, like, why it is that Star Trek thinks, oh, well, if if if, if a woman is trying to be sexy, she's going to tease her hair out a foot. Just huge. Yeah, Just, because both yeah. Sylvia and Ardra. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what he would like. He of no hair. He'd probably like it if I had hair, like, you know, <laughs> enough for three of us. <laughs> I guess it struck me as kind of weird and had the the flowing kind of see-through robe all of that it was it was a very Sylvia look it was a very Sylvia look yes although I mean she she pulled off seduction a bit a bit better than Sylvia did oh you think not 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 overly because because I'm I'm sort of with Picard it was a little too uh it was a little too much yeah, <laughs> I think you know, <laughs> wine me, dine me. Don't just be like, wow, look at me. Like sort of like a, she's that kind of god though. She's that kind of, oh, look at me, I'm a god kind of yeah. person. I want to come back, by the way, to that uh, later in the show. I want to come back to the okay. whole because I, I still, I still don't see this 
as an argument against supernatural or deity or faith. I still mm. I still see it as as use of that, but we'll do it in the next segment. Sure. Okay. Um you know, as a literary device, just to, to point out, because I, I think a lot of people probably do get this already, but you have a Faustian bargain at the at the center of this. So if we're going to point to the other literary influences in the show, you have Faust selling one soul to the devil for a, a short-term gain, or in this place, a thousand-year gain. Um, but uh, I, I do want to talk a bit about the show as sort of the, the lesson in skepticism that I, that I touched on just a, a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Every special power can be explained by other phenomena, uh, and those things are falsifiable. You know, you can say, well, okay, this, this thing happened. Here are all the other reasons that that thing could happen. Here are all the other reasons that an earthquake could be caused. And in their case, tractor beams apparently do a very nice job about it. And that's what makes the opening fun with Ebenezer Scrooge going through the possibilities that would cause him to hallucinate the appearance of Jacob Marley. So it was a really good choice of a scene to put out. If we're going to just hammer home <laughs> what the what the theme is there, what are the, the, the things that we'll see play out. When Scrooge is visited by Marley, he keeps rationalizing to himself, okay, these are all the reasons that you are not Jacob Marley. You, you're me having a bad reaction to some food that I ate. So I, I like having that in there with him trying to walk himself through every other possible explanation other than the ghost of his former business partner showing up. And Picard, Picard is in the position that skeptics find themselves in, uh, in the courtroom scene in particular, um, in which Ardra says to him, okay, here are all these things that happened. And I'm just going to lay them all out. We, I transformed, I caused earthquakes, um, I was able to make you disappear and reappear. Can you explain it? And he says, no. And the problem then is the thinking that a guy like Akos Jared is doing, which is then saying, well, that particular series of events couldn't be explained yet by the knowledge at hand. Therefore, the supernatural explanation must be the right one. And that's where you put the big no with the exclamation point because that's not how that's not how rational skeptical minds work. Because just because you have missing information, and I think that's sort of what we were talking about at the beginning here, that doesn't mean that you stop investigating. It doesn't mean that you stop looking for the evidence of the evidence, not just saying, Well, this all kind of fits together, so we'll leave it there and and the the narrative of the supernatural god being it fits everything that we are telling ourselves to believe now it fits well enough okay good we're done no more investigation it also points out very nicely how we can interpret prophecies to mean whatever we want you know whatever is convenient to fit whether it's a personal or uh, or a social narrative um I was uh, I was entertained because this is very recently I, uh, I I saw that scene. Remember in uh, Star Trek Four when Spock, the revived Spock, is looking at the computers. They're asking him all of these questions, mm-hmm. and of course the ultimate one is, "How do you feel?" Right. You know, and he has a little little problem with that one. But one of the questions that was in there is, "What was Kiri Kenthaw's first law of metaphysics?" And his answer is, "Nothing unreal exists." Which I, I thought, well, that's sort of a great starting point. So if they're going, as Picard is here, that the, the unreal 
is this idea of a uh, you know multi centuries old devil that has shown up to lay claim on a thousand year old contract. He's starting with this idea that this is not real. Therefore, those things do not exist the way that uh, the way that they've been described. All right. Therefore, he has to pull the mask off. I keep just trying, like Scooby Doo. Well, I keep trying to hold off though until the next segment for this. But here's the problem that mm-hmm. I have. Okay, understanding okay, yeah. that Star Trek is not real. Understanding that mm-hmm. all of yeah, this stuff right. does not actually exist. In the thing that we have built around Star Trek, they do. There is a Q. There is a Lucian. The only reason, mm-hmm. like, why is Q not a god? Because Q has never been interested in being a god. That's mm-hmm. it. But Q has godlike powers. Could Q certainly could create life or, or, or at least you know, guide life in such a way. He can have whole armies of people who worship him. He could be Moadib. He could be leading people across the galaxy fighting in his behalf, right? The only mm. reason he's not is because he doesn't want to be, because he's busy doing something else. We have we have seen stories where there are people with godlike powers in Star Trek. And so for Picard to see one and go, Yeah, but that one's not. That's well, just yeah, that's Picard just a little that's just a little writer ex machina here. That's just this week Picard is smart enough to know that this is just a person trying to pull a sham. Right. Even though he's come across people like these that he can't explain before. That's why I don't that's why I don't honestly feel like this is I don't feel like this is saying as much about God or as much about religion as it is about people who would use religion against you. That to me is the real message of this one. I don't I don't honestly feel like this particular episode takes a stance on religion or deities and others do. Others Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. and others will again. But I assume others will again. But I mean, for for Picard, it it honestly almost doesn't work for me that Picard's like, nah, nah, she's a fraud. I, uh, it's in my gut. I mean, that's really all he's got yeah. to go on here. Because sure, something could explain how Q does what Q does. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's a god, and and we've come well, yeah, a, we've but, come but, across but, but, a million of them. Yeah, but but Q and the Metrions and everybody else they have not claimed to be gods, and and even Apollo who said that, well, you know, I kind of played fast and loose with this idea of, you know, feeding off the worship of others. But Apollo is still a guy from a planet with a very nice uh, temple Mm -hmm. (laughs) to live in, you know. Um, Once you have that being, whether it's Ardra that uses, from our perspective on Star Trek, more kind of conventional technology, Mm -hmm. or it's Q, who has ascended to a level of power that we don't understand and probably would not understand for, for a very long time to come after the era that uh, the era that Picard and, and his crew is set in. But they're still actual beings. They, they are still beings that show up that can be talked to, that can be measured, that can be uh, – the, their powers can be measured, and you can actually – see what it is that they do. And mm-hmm. once it stops being a supernatural thing, it is part of the natural world. So even though Q has powers we don't understand and is able to manipulate things in ways that we don't understand, he still does exist for the reality of this crew on the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he stops being supernatural. He is part of the natural universe. It's just there's more for us to study. And there's more for us to actually learn, even though, uh, you know, when something as advanced as the Enterprise comes along, it makes us and our technology look like ants compared to a human. But but that's all right, because I think Star Trek does that very often. You know, every time they introduce one of these characters, 
one of these characters is not necessarily a god, but they're just an advanced thing in the universe that then needs to be understood. And it kind of gives us the reality check to say, yeah, you've got great technology, you're doing great things, but you still have a long way to go. But there's so much more you could do, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much more that you could become. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, it's still, I mean, I think... We're running along similar lines here, but uh, but to me, mm-hmm. the, the message that I took away from it was just uh, well, not to the messages part yet. I just keep getting stuck on. I mean, it, it, I don't know that I would even necessarily say that a god is not a part of the natural world. I understand you're using the term supernatural, and I get that, but I mean, it could just be mm-hmm. you know just advanced enough that we just don't get it. Doesn't mean that we can't become that thing eventually. It seems to me though that it's the it's the using it's the using of that that is the. That is the the crime here, not the belief, because who was the first Erdra? How was that whole thing? How was that whole thing first born in this story? Right. It took me a while to realize, okay, this actually, because I thought it was just a thousand year con. I thought it was, you know, she is like going around to all these different places, <laughs> planting seeds and then coming back like the Benny Gesserit. And there, everybody, that's your second Dune reference for today. I mean, I thought, I thought she was basically like her own Benny Gesserit, going around and like, you know, planting these seeds and then coming back later to, you know, get whatever she can get from it. It's actually yeah. a little bit less believable that she just happened to learn and happened to, you know, that's, I mean, she is a good con person. Yeah. 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 Well, but it, see, and, I, and I, I saw it just as believable that Ardra is not a thousand years old or two thousand years old, or I mean, could be because Star Trek. Star has Trek, shown us, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and, they, and they've shown us people and species that live a really, really long time. But to me, it's just as believable that somebody shows up, has technology, and is some way able to, you know, see what the records of this planet holds. Yeah, he goes, oh. Oh, they're expecting this? Great. I will step right in and I will I will fulfill that role. Yeah. I get it. It's the Ghostbusters rule, you know? It, someone someone asks if you're, you're a god, god, you say yes, and she said yes. Yeah, well, except nobody asked her. She just showed up and she's like, hey, guess what time it is? <laughs> hey, kids, right. what time well, is she's, it? It's Ardra yeah. time. She's taking advantage of, of Asimov's rule that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And it just happened that she found people that were living enough without technology that mm-hmm. they would be amazed by magic. So, you know, lucky her. Good I got, for her. I got to love your ability to quote that, but you got to get the source right. It's Clark. It is Clark. Oh, my gosh. You're yeah. Right. You're right. That just Absolutely. saves you some yep. emails, man. Don't worry about yep. it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Thank no, you. Pro- no problem at all. Did the Enterprise arrest Ardra's crew and impound her ship? If not, why has no one beamed her out yet? Oh, Janaj. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tenrek. From the. No, Kenek. Come on, dude. Oh, Kenick. Yeah, it's oh, all right. Gosh. Yeah, from the beginning of the show to the end of the show and back again. If you played this show from the very last episode, which is years from now, theoretically, uh, mm-hmm. all the way to the first episode, it's John either way. And it's Ken either yeah. way, or Janaj and Kenick. The show is Devil's Due, and it's now uh, the part of the show where we ask ourselves what the messages, morals, and meanings are and whether we feel like the episode holds up. I throw that question to you first, Mr. Champion. Uh, which I couldn't mm. figure out how to like say that the same forward and backwards. I couldn't make that yeah. a, a, a palindrome. Although I also didn't really try. 
<laughs> Devil's Do, does it hold up, John? It, it's a weird sort of step away from what we have just seen in Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Because it, it feels like old Star Trek because it is old Star Trek. You can picture <laughs> this script being played out by Kirk and Spock. Yeah, Kirk, Kirk in the Picard role, Spock in the Data role, and then you introduce the the Devil character, and and maybe it's played by the woman who played Sylvia. I don't know, but mm-hmm. you could picture this being played out that way. Um, there are things about it that might feel a little dated, and there are things about it that might um, might not hold up production wise. But I think I think overall, this is sort of classic Star Trek. And mm-hmm. it's the kind of thing that, that I would say thematically, because there is so much to talk about, you kind of have to see. You, you sort of have to put it out there with, with other episodes. Now, it's maybe not the best Star Trek episode, not the best Next Generation episode, um, but, but I think it's kind of essential Star Trek, at least to get an idea of what this world of the 24th century is all about. And and the the point of view of these these advanced humans who live in the 24th century are all about. So, yeah, I, I'm going to say that it holds up, even though it feels just a little weird. It feels a little <laughs> odd, you know. Well, it feels it, it feels weird after we've had all this, like you know, character development, family issues. I mean, we we're we're in mm-hmm. season four now, right? Yeah, 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 and people feel like that's really where it takes off because we really get to know why it is that Picard hates his brother, and that's so not Star Trek. Heck, Kirk doesn't even remember that he had a brother. <laughs> I mean, that's right. that's Star Trek, right? Kirk has a yeah, family. Yeah. It depends who's writing it this week. Okay, well then, yes, Kirk has a family. So I mean, you're right. It, it's it's yeah. It almost feels clunky, and yet, as you say, it is it is very much a, it is very much a Star Trekky. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but uh, no, no, no. That, that, that was I thought that was your perfect chance to come in and tell me if you think it holds. Oh well, um, the problems that I have with it are weird. Um, okay. The fact that we have come across so many, and I think I said this like five times during the last segment. Mm-hmm. The fact that we've come across so many super powerful beings, and Picard is like, yeah, but this isn't one of them. He bases that on nothing, and mm-hmm. I and I have a problem, and that actually holds this episode back for me. I would mm. rather there had been some sort of reveal or something that he had picked up on. Like last week we were talking about when they when they came across the ship that had the, the subspace whatever thing and they couldn't see what was inside the ship. That yeah. was a clue to Picard. He needed a clue in this episode because he has bet he, – he's hung out with Kevin Uxbridge. He knows that there are people that can do the kinds of things that she's claiming to do. But for some reason he's automatically like, well, no, she can't do this. And that, and that kind of started to take me out of it a tiny bit. Yeah, but see, I, I don't think that he's ever thinking that she can't do it, whether it's a technological answer or or if we just go with the idea that she's got those powers the way that Q has those powers. I, I, I'll give it to you that, yeah, he, he doesn't have any evidence that she is not Q. He just sort of assumes it because everybody else assumes it mm-hmm. because it's out of step for what they've seen of Q so far. But even if it was Q... I think he would hold Q's feet to the fire and say, hey, you're not, <laughs> you're not a god who was here a thousand years ago and, and expecting these people to build a whole theology around this. You're a guy who just likes to mess with people. No, and you're see, a guy who has more power than they have. Okay, but he wouldn't call Q a con man. 
he would say that you're using your power in ways that's wrong. You're you're lording it over these people. You're being a terrible person. He wouldn't say you're a sham. And that's okay, that's yeah, his enough. that's his starting point with her is no yeah. no no she's she's full of it, and and yeah. that 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 was a problem for me. Like I say, if he had been given mm-hmm. one or two clues and had decided that in the face of everybody else's belief, or everybody else's wondering, then I would have been more on board with it. But for his to de- for him to decide immediately, no 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 no, I'm sort of like, well, where's where's the Picard who wonders, who questions, who you know, who needs evidence. Oh, because not he, that I'm not that impressed with earthquakes. Well, I guess you know? that's yeah. I guess that could be it. <laughs> yeah. There was another thing that kind of took me out of it a tiny bit. Okay. Um, different than justice, you know, when uh, Wes and the crew were on the planet and he stepped on the flowers and that earned him the death sentence. Uh, in Devil's mm-hmm. Due, uh, the Enterprise isn't even in coastal waters; it's in space. It is no part of this contract. And just because somebody wrote a piece of paper that said, "Well, if there's anything orbiting the planet, that's mine too." Right. Why, why are they even playing? Why, why are they even? I could, I could honestly see Picard saying, "All right, well, sorry, anybody who's on the planet, we're going to do our best to get you off here." But no, my ship is my ship. That part uh, kind of took me out a tiny bit as well. It certainly doesn't have the excitement that a lot of the, you know, why Picard hates his brother uh, episodes do. It certainly doesn't have the the, the sort of the the, the human side sure. uh, that so many of these episodes do, but. This is going to end up being one of our longer episodes of Mission Log in a while because it just gives you so much stuff to chew on and so much stuff to think about. And it really does. I mean, you say at the beginning of the show, and I didn't know this before you said it, that this was originally written around the time of Star Trek. Well, of course it was. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right, and and yeah, and and I think that's one of the reasons that I, like I'm I'm having so much fun playing in it. I don't like necessarily all the stuff that we end up having to say, and I'm not looking forward to some of the emails that we may or may not get as a result. Mm-hmm. But this is Star Trek. I mean, this is Star Trek in ways that that even the bonding wasn't, and the bonding still kind of was. But I mean, this this is these are the big issues. That, yeah. that that I feel like that Star Trek was made for. So even if it's not as exciting, and even if, you know, yeah, I make fun of her clothes. But I mean, it's, yeah, I think this episode, it's like you say, it's an important episode. Is it a great episode? Well, it's important. <laughs> so maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's not the most exciting or things like that. Um, certainly we've, 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 we've addressed some of the messages, I think, but, uh, I don't know, lay them out for me, man. What, what do you feel like some of the messages were? I feel like there's so much, uh, no such thing as magic. (laughs) So I'll just, I'll I'll throw that one out there. Okay. Um, and you know, going back to this idea of religion, it's not really making a statement here about religion or belief the way that we did in who watches the watchers. I mean, I think we will always sort of hold that one up as, Star Trek The Next Generation telegraphing to the audience what it thinks. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are making some other statements here about fear as a motivator and letting our emotions do our thinking for us, um, not being skeptical and following evidence to, to where it leads, but rather having the conclusion before we even investigate the evidence. Um, it's looking at the danger of a quick fix without understanding the root cause or consequence. Um, It's saying that there's no shortcut to peace and prosperity. 
Um, in Picard's cross-examination of Jared, I'm reminded definitely about Gene Roddenberry's statement about aliens building the pyramids. He's the guy who famously has said, and, and you see it in so many clips of his that get replayed, he says, of course aliens didn't build the pyramids. Human beings did it because they're clever and they work hard. And that's what Picard was dragging out of Jared mm-hmm. to say you don't need to give over the hard work that you did to some supernatural deity. You did it. You did it, so take credit for it. Um, there's no need to introduce this other element there. It's totally unnecessary. Um, the flip side of that, and the problem that Jared is having here, is that if you believe in something strongly enough, you'll probably find a way to make it come true. Mm. So here's all these people believing that their world is coming to an end. So they're going to figure out a way to make their world come to an end. That's kind of the unfortunate thing of seeing all the running and all the fires and all the looting and, and all of this stuff. And, you know, even if we're not making a statement specifically about religion, I, I think we are – we're saying something about a kind of belief. And, and we're saying that here's the danger of turning one's back on, on science or at the very least critical thinking, turning one's back on critical thinking. Fear is a motivator here. And once you get theology involved, I, I feel like that's what's exploding the problems. It, it, it's just absolutely making them swell to, to portions that they or proportions that they didn't expect. You know, to this day in the 21st century, we have people announcing that their particular interpretation of their particular deity or religion has told them when the world will end Mm -hmm. and when and where the wars will be fought and who should lead us into it or who should lead us out of it. (laughs) And you think that, okay, if you remove that element of relying on the supernatural interpretation, then and only then can you actually get to to figuring out the root cause of those issues. So, like you just said, man, this may not be the best episode, but there is so much to chew on, and I probably only just scratched the surface here. What what did you find? Well, I feel like the messages here. We might have actually left a couple of things out, but you know, we may just have mm-hmm. to as well. Um, yeah. I mean, there are interesting ideas uh, being presented here, like you said about belief. Uh, maybe faith, but definitely belief. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, these people all think their world is going to end. They believe their world is about to end. So they go out looting and setting fires and staging raids that will, you know, end parts of their world mm-hmm. because they know it's going to happen. And so they're they're living into that. Uh, more than that, though, a thousand years ago, these people believed that their world was going to get better. So they, yeah. you know, switched from an industrialized society to an agrarian society. They got rid of all their weapons. They enacted environmental initiatives. They believed that their world was going to get better. So, you know, they set about making their world better. I would love to think that a message here could be that you don't need God to be good. Mm-hmm. You don't need fear to motivate. Uh, that tends to be what we as humans use, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of a drag. I would love it if that weren't the case. I... I know we're, we try not to have this show speak to anything uh, that's sort of of the moment. Yeah. Um, but it's you know consuming large parts of our lives right now. There is a political party right now, as, as, as we record this, that's trading on fear. There's another that's trying to trade on hope, but hope doesn't sell nearly as well, it doesn't seem. And and I'm always amazed when I watch you know some rallies where where a, a a leader will stand there and say, 
everyone is afraid and everyone claps. Mm-hmm. And the leader stands there and says, everything is going in the wrong direction. And everyone cheers. Yeah. And if we keep telling ourselves that that's true, and look, I'm not saying there aren't problems, but when we speak in absolutes, this country is going in the wrong direction. This planet's going in the wrong direction. If we keep saying that, we keep saying that to ourselves, we keep believing that, we're toast. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, I don't know, kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I wish I, I guess I wish if, if we're going to use fear as a motivator, I guess I wish that we were all afraid of the same things and but, but you, of, know what? Like, you know, subdividing it into smaller, smaller things. Well, no, you be afraid of that guy. And that guy is there. I'm going to tell him to be afraid of that one. And I'm yeah. just going to rake it in. Um, I will say one of the things that you pointed out, and I loved it as well. I love the fact that Picard's inability to explain a thing doesn't automatically make the only other explanation offered accurate. And I know I've been saying this whole time, I don't feel like this episode is addressing deities as much as I feel like it's addressing organized religion or even addressing the way people will use belief like that. But I I, I did love the fact that, you know, Picard's like, person standing there saying, well, can you prove I'm not God? (laughs) Picard's (laughs) like, no. Well, then I must be. Well, no. I mean, that's, you know, I I really did. I really did love that part as well. And then I feel like there's probably a bunch of other stuff that we're still missing. Yeah, well, no, I mean that, that's a, you know you, you can't prove a negative, and the so Picard cannot prove that she is not, but the burden of proof is still on Ardra to prove that she is, and she's got a lot longer way to go to actually do that. But I, I want to go back to that thing that you said about you know fear as a motivator or or this promise of God to be good, mm-hmm. you know the the pressure of God to be good. But here's Star Trek again, putting Picard this time instead of Kirk, as it was, you know, 25 years before this, Mm -hmm. putting Picard in that position to say, you don't need either because you did the work and you've already proven you can do the work and do better. You know, so that that sort of Star Trek's message here is using Picard as the guy to spread that message. He has to hammer it into Jared's head. <laughs> you know, he, he's got to he's got to drag Jared up to that line. And, and even Jared backs down when Ardra asks him in that cross-examination. But once she's out of the picture... You, you hope, man, you just hope. I, I hope they don't go back to war. <laughs> I hope they don't go back to war either. But I mean, I, no no offense to you and what you're saying about mm-hmm. Picard's message. But I mean, Ardra then does come back and say, by the way, okay, so you guys did this all on your own and bang up job. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you have if I hadn't scared you into it? Yeah. And his answer is, oh, no. No. Well, that's what that's what he <laughs> believes. That's what he believes. But he wasn't there a thousand years ago. You know, again, a thousand years ago, you had the government of Ventaxa or Ventax Two mm-hmm. building their own better life. You know, laying the seeds for having a better life in the future for the generations that came, cleaning their own water supply, uh, getting rid of the pollution that they had there. You okay, know, but it, it either, was them doing it. Either they had something like an Ardra show up. Or they were, and I don't want to say smart enough to know, they believed that people would need the fear of an Ardra to keep it going. Maybe yeah, you even that. had an, like an enlightened 10 years where somebody's like, we can do all this stuff. Okay, how do we keep people doing this? Oh, I know. Right. Let's scare the pants off them. What, like a thousand <laughs> years? Please, they'll all be dead in a thousand years. Nobody will even remember. <laughs> it's not going to be a pro- Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's depressing, right? No, yeah. no, it's awesome. I think it's great. We <laughs> solved everything, and now we can do that thing that we do where we uh, 
I don't know, you set them up. I'll <laughs> and I'll let people know that Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about, uh, oh, the, the entertainment stuff they're doing, the things they want to sell you, uh, the, uh, the, the good work that the Roddenberry Foundation does. Not that it's not all good work, but I mean, you know, the other good work. Roddenberry.com is the place to find all that stuff out. Uh, for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, clues. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Radar is an acronym. ARDRA is not. But, for fun, make up the thing for which the acronym, ARDRA, would stand, and send it to John Hodge. I think he would love that. And transmission. 